kind of an abrupt start, wasn't it? Our, our video got thrown off. It is 7 o'clock, so we're going to go ahead and jump in. But um, I know I heard somebody say, you still had two minutes left. I guess you are really enjoying that video. Well, I, sorry I can't outdo the video, but you know. Uh, so we're going to get started tonight. <laughs> I, I did something to my neck, so if I seem real stiff up here, that's why. Uh, I just figured if I walk around like an old man, that'll just be my impression of Pastor Mike. Um, notice I said that when he's not here. I would never... <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, absolutely kidding. Well, on a serious note, um, if you've been watching the news or watching Facebook at all in the past couple days, past couple, well, just yesterday, there's been some pretty tragic things in Uvalde, Texas. And so I just wanted to take a moment to get started today and to kind of pray for that community. They, they are our community too. They're not that far away from us. We're, we're here in Texas. And um, regardless of where they are, there are people who are hurting and there are people who need the church to come around them and to lift them up in prayer. So if we could just take a moment. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come together and to pray for brothers and sisters who we may not know, who we may have never met and may never met, may, may never meet. And I thank you that we're able to come and join around people who are hurting, people who are in need of a touch from you. I pray that you would just bestow your peace on them right now. I pray that you would reach into their lives in this painful time, that there are, there are no words that can be said. There is nothing that can be, um, there's nothing that can be done that can make the pain go away. But I pray right now that your peace would bring them to a place where they can understand, not, not understand, but that they can feel your ministry. I pray that if there's anything that we can do, that you would lead us in our, in our hearts to do those things and reach out to this community. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I am excited once again to be joining you as we continue this series, Strength and Weakness, from 2 Corinthians, which is a study of 2 Corinthians, which was a, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth um, to respond to some things that were happening in the church. We've kind of talked about that. I'll recap just a little bit. Paul had established this church. He had taught them what they needed to believe. And as he left to go establish other churches, false teachers rose up and they began to challenge what Paul had been preaching, which we believe to be the, the teaching of the apostles. We believe this to be truth. We believe it to be a representation of what Jesus taught while he was here on earth. And these false teachers came up and they said, don't listen to Paul. He's a false teacher. What he's teaching isn't true. Uh, you need to come back to Judaism, come back to the law. And over the past couple of weeks, we've kind of broken this letter up um, to, to kind of see what Paul was saying. How does it apply to us? A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Mike talked about um, how we can't go back, right? As, as, as good as it is to have nostalgia, as good as it is to have good memories, we can't go back to the former thing. We have to step into the new thing that God is doing. And that was what Paul was encouraging the church to do, saying there's a new covenant. It's better than the old one. We can't go back to the things from before. This was a defense of his ministry. He was saying, look, what I taught you was true. It was real. Look at the demonstration. Look at the people's lives who have been changed. And then last week I spoke and I shared about his defense of the gospel. Not only was he defending himself and his own ministry, but he was defending the message that he was teaching. He was saying, look, we didn't come and try to persuade you. We didn't come with all these fancy words to try to get you to believe what we, what we wanted you to believe. We came and we showed you the truth. We didn't hide anything. We laid it out in the open. We laid it out for you and it, you received it. Now, the theme that we've been seeing here is that the new covenant 
is greater than the former. And we spent a lot of time unpacking that. I won't go into much review. Uh, There's always those other sermons that you can go back and watch. We're going to move forward. Last week, I ended with verse 7, and it was kind of a tricky thing to do. Pastor Mike kind of gave me all all of uh, chapter 4, and I wasn't really sure where to make the break. It's always kind of hard whenever you're talking about a letter that somebody wrote uh, to to break it up. So I finished with verse 7, but now I'm going to pick up with verse 7 and move in and finish chapter 4, moving through uh, the end of it. So we're going to start with verses 7 through 9. But we have this treasure in earthen containers, so that the extraordinary greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. There was a really catchy song that had those lyrics in it. I can't help but sing it whenever I, I, I say those things. Now, what we have here is a, a set of comparing and contrasting of terms. Now, we need to unpack that a little bit. Something you need to realize is that when um, a letter was written in this day and age, it was very difficult to do. It took time. It was expensive. And it took somebody who was very educated to write. Not everybody had that skill. We, we have that as a luxury today, that we can write, we can communicate. Now, if I wanted to send a text to somebody, I could send it. You know, there's been times where I might have been frustrated with someone, and I typed out a text real quick, and then I'm like, okay, I can't send that, so I'll go back and I'll delete it, and I'll edit it. And I do all of that in a matter of just minutes, right? Back then, they didn't have that luxury. If they messed up, they had to start all over. So the reason I'm saying that is because when we see words that were written, we need to understand that they were very purposeful. The way they were written, the words that were chosen were intentional. Beyond that, we believe that this is the inspired word of God. And we believe that the Holy Spirit spoke to the biblical writers and moved upon them so that they would write exactly what he wanted them to write, which leads us to believe that every word in here has a purpose, and we need to unpack those. It's easy to gloss over some of those things, without stopping to realize uh, what, what was going on. Now, let's break this down a little bit. And we have to also realize that these words were not written to us. They were not written in our language. On a little bit of a side note, did you know that Julius Caesar, in his entire life, never once said the words, thank you? In his entire life, he never once said thank you. It's probably because he didn't speak English. Um, and neither did Paul. Neither did Paul. Paul spoke Greek. He wrote in Greek. Koine Greek was the marketplace language of the time, and it was how most, all of the New Testament was written because it was the common language. So if we're going to unpack it, we could open Webster's Dictionary. We could open the Oxford Dictionary. We could get a pretty good understanding of the definitions of these words. The Amplified Bible does a good job of that. But I feel like if we're really going to see what Paul meant, we need to go to the language that he wrote in. So I kind of broke these down a little bit. And I'm going to share the Greek word and what it meant. And we can kind of unpack that a little bit. So the first construction that we're going to look at is hard-pressed but not crushed. Some translations say afflicted. Um, NIV, I think, gets it the best. Hard-pressed, meaning uh, the the Greek word is thlebo. Thlebo, and it means suffer or tribulation. Suffer or tribulation. We all walk through that. We're seeing that in Uvalde right now. There's, There's suffering. There's tribulation. There's things that that these poor people are facing that we would consider to be suffering. That word is contrasted. So he says, Phlebo, hard-pressed, but not, and the word is stenakoreo. Stenakoreo, which we would translate as crushed. Hard-pressed, but not crushed. The, the most basic meaning of that is to hold back affection, to close one's heart. 
So it's a little bit different than crushed, but the idea is he's saying, yes, we face tribulation. Yes, we face suffering, but God has not closed his heart to us. God has not held back his affection from us. We've all been through difficult times. We've all faced things that are challenging, but there's a difference between facing things that are difficult and feeling as though we are completely alone. We've maybe felt the rejection of a relationship when somebody holds back affection from us. We've maybe felt that rejection when somebody closes their heart off to us. That's very different than going through a difficult season in our life. So Paul is comparing and contrasting these things here. The next construction is perplexed but not despairing. Perplexed but not despairing. Perplexed is the Greek word aparejo, aparejo, which means to be at a loss, to be at a loss. Despairing is the Greek word ex aparejami, which is, it's the same root, aparejo, the same root, but it's constructed further and it adds more to it. So where aparejo is to be at a loss, this next word is to be utterly at a loss without resource. Now, you can imagine if you were driving around and you were lost. Most of the time, we are in situations where we could find our way. I know being here in Cleburne, I've gotten lost a few times, a lot of one-way streets, gotten honked at quite a few times. Um, And, uh, you know, I get lost. But you know what? It's not that difficult for me to find my way. If all else fails, I can call Brent. He knows how to get anywhere. Uh, and, And I can find my way home. Now, a more scary time was a time that my wife and I and my son, right before we actually came into this position, we decided to go to Oklahoma for a a quick little vacation. And we got right about where Texas ends and Oklahoma begins and not really in a populated part of it. Um, And our cell phone reception went out, a place I had never been before. Here I am with my, at that time, four-month-old son. My wife uh, and I were sitting in the car trying to figure out what are we going to do if we can't figure out where we are. And it's getting dark. Uh, it was every setup for a horror movie. <laughs> if you've ever felt one or seen one of those before, if you've ever felt that way, that's how it felt. I felt at a loss, completely, without resource. I didn't know what I was going to do. That was very different than being lost in downtown Cleburne, right? So you can kind of understand the comparison and contract, contrast that he's doing here. The next is persecuted, but not abandoned. Persecuted, the Greek word diako earnestly desire to overtake. If somebody was earnestly desiring to overtake you, that's the, the connotation. The next word is engalepo. Engalepo, which is to leave behind or desert. Now, if I earnestly overtake someone, it's a little bit different than leaving them or deserting them. Again, it's, it's this more extreme version of the other. And the last one is struck down but not destroyed. Struck down as katabolo, to throw down in a lower place. Contrasted with the Greek word for destroyed, apolome, to destroy, utterly destroyed. Death being viewed as certain. So we get this idea of someone being thrown down, but then the next is someone, their death is certain. It's an absolute, they're utterly destroyed. So what is Paul doing here? The way he's contrasting these, the construction of each of these statements is something that's terrible, contrasted with something that's far worse. Something that's temporary, contrasted with something that's permanent. So our suffering, what he's trying to say is each word in the affirmative, those things that Paul is attributing to his circumstance, are contrasted with a word that takes the condition further, showing that our present suffering is temporary. 
Suffering is temporary. And not only is it temporary, but it's partitioned. This shows us that God not only puts us, allows us to be in seasons where things are difficult, but even in those seasons, he partitions it. He makes it so that we are not facing the fullness of what we could be facing. A lot of times when things happen, we feel like God has left us, like he's abandoned us. But I can guarantee you from scripture and just from walking through difficult times and seeing where God was actually present in the circumstance, there's always something that he's doing. He's always working in that situation, even whenever I feel utterly alone. Paul's saying that our suffering is temporary. No matter how, how bad life gets, it's clear that God restrains the condition and provides resources for us in times of trouble. The life of the believer is to declare the message of Christ, which at times is very costly. However, the Lord is faithful in preserving his people. Now, I can imagine if we shared the stories of difficult times that we've walked through, we could probably spend hours, days, maybe even weeks with each of us sharing how God has walked us through a difficult time. God is very good at preserving his people. In the moment, it doesn't feel that way. In the moment, it feels like the world is coming to an end. But when we look back, when we're sharing that with someone else, we begin to see that God was always at work. Now, Paul acknowledges the present struggle, but he's motivated by the unseen things. The physical life will one day give way to the eternal, the unseen things. This is important for us to unpack. Um, whenever my son was born, I remember being in the delivery room with my wife, and we, uh, we were kind of running late to the emergency or to the delivery room. And a big part of that is because my wife is somewhat stubborn. I mean, determined is how she likes to say it. Um, and I really believe that that was how God gifted her to put up with me, um, to, be, to be somewhat stubborn. But she did not want to be that new mom who goes to the emergency room four, five, six times to say, hey, I know what you're feeling is bad, but trust me, it gets worse. So she didn't want to go to the, emer- to the delivery room unless she absolutely had to, and it was almost too late, and she almost wasn't able to get an epidural. And so there was a moment where she was having to face the reality that she might have to give birth, completely natural, and I'm not even going to begin to imagine what that was like. Later, after our son was born, she did get an epidural, but later after our son was born, I, I asked her, I said, what were you kind of going through? What were you thinking about? And she said, to be completely honest, and she was holding my son when she said it, what I, what I have now would have made it completely worth it. I would have been willing to go through whatever I needed to for him, and I'd be willing to go through the whole pregnancy again just to have him now. She was able to grab a hold of the unseen thing. We didn't know what our, what our son looked like. We didn't know what it would be like to have a baby, but she was able to hold to that, that unseen thing and endure the pain because she believed it was temporary. She believed in that moment it was fleeting, and what she was going to have was much more eternal. Um. Now, why, why is Paul talking about this? Obviously, it's a great principle, but we also know that when Paul spoke to his original audience, he spoke not only in a language, but in a culture that they would understand. And so one way that we can unpack that a little bit more is to understand the worldview that the readers would have had, the philosophical background, if you will, that they would have had. Now, why would we do this? Well, think about an early Greek Christian trying to sit through a service in an American church. They would have no context for it. We preach through an American lens, through a Western lens, which was very different from 2,000 years ago when this was being preached. In order to understand what Paul was saying to them, we have to kind of step into their context a little bit. 
And one of the things that we can understand, the philosophical backdrop, the, the most prominent view of that time was a thing called Stoicism. Stoicism. Now, we hear this term used today. We see a person who's very stone-faced. They endure things. We say they're very stoic. They're a stoic person. That's where this comes from. They would say that Abraham Lincoln was a very stoic man. Uh, he was just... He would endure whatever he needed to. But that comes from a group of philosophers in ancient Greece known as the Stoics who developed this way of thinking. Now, Stoic philosophers were praised for their suffering. The Jews would praise prophets and martyrs because they endured so much in their time. Now, uh, the prevailing philosophy of that day was Stoicism. Much of the apostles' teachings embodied Stoic elements because it was such a strong part of the culture. Stoicism was developed in strong contrast to another group called the Epicureanists. Epicureanists, Epicureanism. Epicureanism was the idea that everything in life was sensation and physical. All reality can be felt and experienced. An Epicurean thought they needed to avoid pain because sensations were how we interpret reality. But the Stoics, they differed from the Epicureans because in that, in that Stoics believed that physical sensation were simply a reflection of a greater reality. Many facets of Stoicism can be seen in early Christianity, but most important for today is the separation of the seen and the unseen. Now, remember I mentioned before that that's what Paul is asking us to do. Don't deny the, the current reality, but look beyond to the eternal. He's, he's preaching a, a biblical truth, but he's speaking in a way that the readers would have understood from a Stoic uh, perspective. Now, Plato, who contributed a great deal to Stoic philosophy, believed that the physical was heavy and it weighed down the soul. Plato also believed that the world of ideas was more real than the physical. So he actually took it a step further. And so imagine for a second, the most perfect sandwich. Imagine the most perfect sandwich. Imagine the, the, the nice toasted bread on top and the most perfect crisp piece of lettuce. Uh, whatever your choice of meat might be, it's the perfect cut. It's the perfect cheese. All of it's just perfection. Now, you visualize that in your mind. If I were to bring the elements and make a sandwich up here, it would pale in comparison to what you visualized, right? Because the bread probably wouldn't be quite as toasted as you'd like. The meat, it might be okay, but there might be parts that are a little bit fatty and they might not be the best. The, the, the lettuce might be withered. Now, to Plato, what he visualized was more real than the imperfect representation of that real thing. He denied reality in that sense and believed that what you visualize, the unseen thing, was more real Paul didn't go that far. Paul believed. He said, don't deny the physical. Don't deny what you're going through. The pain is real. The struggle is difficult. The, 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 what you're feeling in this moment, it's not like the Stoics said. It's not something to be ignored. It truly is something that you're walking through. But there's an eternal reality that outweighs what you're walking through right now. Now, there are Stoic elements in Paul's teaching. When Paul does not deny the physical reality, he does acknowledge that the physical world is subject to decay, but the spiritual world is eternal. Now, there's a lot that I just talked about there, and now we're going to jump into verses 10 through 12. So verses 10 through 12, always carrying around in the body the dying of Christ so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who live in... We who live are constantly being handed over to death because of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, 
but life works in you. Now, I mentioned earlier, is written in Koine Greek. One of the reasons why it's important to break these words down is because Greek was a very complex language. And it was very important for communicating the complex ideas of the Christian faith because it had so many different variations of words. So many different ways that the words can be constructed. For example, I might say that I love my wife, and then I might say that I love cheesecake. But I surely hope that you don't mistake the love that I have for my wife to be the same as cheesecake, although I do really love cheesecake. But it's different. Now, in Greek, you would use different words for that, such as the word philo is love. We would translate it as love, but it's a brotherly love. There are other words that have other connotations. Agape is a, is a selfless love. It's an unconditional love, different from the other forms. In the same way, death is one word that we would read in, in, our, uh, in our English translation. But there are several different ver- words that could be used for death. And it's important when that happens to, to try to figure out why did Paul use one over the other. Now, there's two, even in this construction, there's two words that he uses Now, in verse 11, he uses the word thanatos, which is pretty typical for death, and I'll explain why. But in this verse, verse 10, he uses the word that we would translate as death, which is necrosis. Necrosis. Now, thanatos was a metaphysical term. It was the way that we would talk about death in a... uh, more spiritual, scientific way of the, the, the soul leaving the body. Now, necros was different. Thanatos was more clean. It was more uh, textbook oriented. It was just talking about the, the uh, process of dying. But necrosis was different. Necrosis spoke to the physical reality of death. It had the connotation of the stench, of the rot, of the physical decomposition that happens with death that Thanatos didn't. Here in verse uh, 10, Paul says, always carrying around in the body the dying of cross, he, dying of Jesus, he uses the word necrosis. We are supposed to get from that the, 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 the gory part of Christ's death. Whenever I was younger, uh, I had some neighbors, they had this German shepherd, and this German shepherd would often get out, and it would go and, and do all kinds of stuff and then come back. And one time, it had found a dead animal, and it rolled in this dead animal, and it got the smell all over it. And if you've ever smelt a dead animal, you know exactly what I'm referring to. There's nothing quite like it. It is just a stench, just disgusting smell. And this dog ran up to me and jumped up on me, and my clothes smelt like that dead animal. I think we burned them. I don't know. It was, it, there's really no way to get rid of it. I'd rather smell a skunk than that smell. It's just, it's bad. It's a bad smell. And so whenever I read necrosis, that's what comes to my mind, is that stench of death. And this is what he's trying to say. Now, scientifically, in two to four days, it takes two to four days for a body to start to stink. Two to four days for a body to start to stink. Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. Remember that whenever Jesus came and he said, open the tomb, and he called him, they said, Jesus, he, he's been in there for seven days. As the King James would say, he stinketh, right? It's this, we need to keep that closed. Jesus was in the tomb for three days. We can imagine that his body was beginning to decay. He was beginning to stink. Why is that significant? Because his death was, it was real. He truly died, and he truly decayed, and he went through the process that we walk through. And this is what Paul is saying. He uses this word because not only is he saying that we carry the death of cross, uh, death of Jesus, 
he's saying that we carry the stench of death. What we face, what we encounter, is the ugly, gory side of death. The persecution that Paul was facing at the time, the things that he had to deal with, it was not the pretty side of the resurrection. It was the stinking, rotting part of death. That's what he's saying. He said, but we endure that so that you endure the resurrection. What does he mean by that? Let's unpack that a little bit. Now, we know that eternal glory is greater than temporal pain. Let's jump into verses 13 through 18, unpack this a little bit, and then we'll explain why is it significant that through the death of Christ that they carry, that the, other, that the church at Corinth and us included get to enjoy the resurrection. <clears throat> Verse 13, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and will present us with him. For all things are for your sake. So the grace having spread to more and more people will cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but through our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affection is producing for us an internal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So there's those stoic elements again. For our momentary light affection is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Now, the Stoics believed that the flesh was weighing down the soul. Paul here is saying that our momentary suffering is creating a new weight for us in eternity. We have to remember that not only was Paul writing to a Greek context, but he was also writing to many Jewish readers. One of the reasons why Paul was so effective with the early church is that he actively sought to unify Jews and Greeks. And one of the ways that he did that is by mixing phrases in ways that both could understand. Here he is saying to the Greek mind who would have understood the weight in a philosophical context, but he's also using weight and glory in a way that the Jews would have understood. Where Greek uh, was a very complex language, Hebrew was a very simple and primitive language, and where Greek would use uh, multiple words to convey different thoughts, Hebrew often used one word to convey multiple thoughts. So it was kind of the opposite. The Hebrew word kavad can mean weight, heavy, or glory. The Jewish audience would have understood this. So what he's doing here is he's, he's talking about the weightedness of glory. Because in that, the Greek speakers would have seen that differently. And so there's kind of a play on words here of the weight of our current suffering produces the glory in the eternal. What we walk through here on earth is producing something much weightier, much heavier, much more glorified in heaven than we could ever understand in our present sufferings. While, verse 18, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for these things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, where the Stoics, they saw and they attributed this strength, this uh, this condition of the philosophers, they, they saw that as something that those philosophers had, had worked hard to accomplish. Paul is taking the same attribute, but he's saying, this isn't something that I 
put together. This isn't something that I've worked hard to do. This is something that the Spirit is motivating me to do. The Spirit is allowing me to endure hardship because I'm able to look beyond where I am and I'm able to see the eternal value of what I'm accomplishing, the glory that's up ahead. Not glory for us. Remember in our, in our uh, talk last week, he said he's chosen earthen vessels, not so that we are glorified, but so that he is glorified. The Stoics would have said, look at what I can accomplish as I face difficult times. The Jews would have looked at the prophets and martyrs and say, look at what they did. They endured hardship. But Paul's saying, no, look, he chose me, the most unqualified of them all. I killed Christians. I persecuted Christians. He chose me. So that whenever you see what I accomplish, you won't say, wow, look at Paul. Look at all the things he's done. But you'll say, wow, there must be a God. There must be a redeeming Savior who could save Paul and who could make him a Christian. That's why he's chosen a broken church. That's what we talked about last week. Now, we talked about that last week, about the broken church, about the things that we face, the weak, fragile uh, nature of the church. But also think about how much we endure. Think about how much we face. It's to glorify him. Paul was facing death daily. He was facing persecution on a daily basis. Sometimes we have to step out of our context here, and we have to realize that this was a new, um, this was a new teaching within the Roman Empire. And the Romans didn't pay kindly to things that were new because things that were new often meant there was a revolt coming. And the Romans certainly didn't pay kindly to revolts. They shut those down very quickly. And that was one of the things that made them so effective. For the most part, the Romans would allow their subjects to operate with autonomy. They would allow them to do what they wanted. But the one line that you didn't cross was that you did not try to overthrow the Roman Empire. And there were components of Christianity, this talk of a new kingdom, this talk of a king who was going to come and establish a kingdom that would have caused the Roman Empire, it would have caught their ear. And they wanted to shut down anybody who was attempting to proclaim this. Not only them, but also the Jewish people. They saw that this new teaching was stealing people away from their faith, stealing people away from Judaism. They saw it as a false teaching, which is why Paul first persecuted the Christians, because he saw it as something that was distracting to them. So there's two major groups who have a lot of opposition to this new teaching of Jesus Christ, this new king who is coming, king of the Jews who would rule the world. Paul, being one of the earliest evangelists, being one of the ones who was pushing this message so strongly, was a target for the Roman Empire, and he was persecuted very often. There's passages in Scripture, we don't have time to go into them, but there's passages of Scripture that talk about the brutal beatings that he encountered, the things that he faced, being stoned and left for dead, being abandoned, being deserted, the things he faced. As as we walk through that list, I'm crushed. I'm hard-pressed, but I'm not crushed. I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. We, we have to look through his lens. He truly was. He truly was struck down at every turn. And not only that, but now this church who he had poured his life into, that he had valued so much, many of them are accusing him. We can assume from his responses that he had probably received a letter from the church at Corinth, and they were saying, Paul, we've, we've heard these accusations, and we're beginning to believe them. Imagine... A group of people who you have poured your life into. 
who you had loved unconditionally, who you had loved like a child, who you had poured so much time, invested so much prayer. And it talks about how he, he, he longed to come and be with them, just like a father wants to be with his children. And he receives a letter from them saying, we don't know if you're even, if we can trust you. I can imagine that in that moment, the beatings, the des- being deserted, the stoning, probably paled in comparison to the eternal, internal pain that he felt because these people were turning their backs on him. And here he is, not defending himself, not saying, look, I've done all this good stuff for you. You need to, you need to support me financially. He wasn't doing that. He was saying, listen, I, I, I hear where you're coming from. But look at the testimony. Look what the message that I delivered to you has produced within your church. Let that speak for itself. He's not appealing to all of the things that he can do. He's appealing to the message and to the fruit that has come out of it. So he's facing death on many levels. He's facing death physically. He's also facing death of a relationship that he valued. But he's constantly looking to the future. Now, historically, persecution has advanced the church. If we look throughout church history, it was the times where persecution was the strongest that Christianity spread the widest. The first time that Christians were persecuted in Jerusalem, that they began to spread throughout the world. Honestly, that's why we're saved today. That's why we've heard the gospel. Because that started a missionary journey that never ended. And we're here today. Every person in this room can, can trace their lineage back to those early Christians who, who left Jerusalem, went and started churches all around the world. And somebody told somebody, and somebody else told somebody else, and somebody else told somebody else, until here we are today, sitting in a room, worshiping Jesus, because we heard a message about the cross. And we can thank, really, persecution for that, because it spread the gospel. Not only that, but there are just countless stories of, of people who had to leave a certain area, but they took the light with them. They took it somewhere else. They established churches. Even being here in America, we are the result of people fleeing persecution, coming to a place where they could worship freely. Now, because of the testimony of the martyrs, it motivated the church. Our testimony motivates the church. This is what Paul was saying. Our testimony motivates the church. When he said that we carry the death of Christ so that you carry the life and the resurrection, that's what he's saying. Because as you watch us endure hardship and we come back to you and we say, look, here's the testimony. Yes, it's been difficult. Yes, it's been hard. But look at the seed. Look at the fruit that we've produced. Look what's come out of it. That's how we carry the resurrection. Because someone else suffered we have so much to, to say for it. Now, what does that say about us? How, how do we apply that? In the 1400s in England, uh, there began a persecution of the church. And two bishops were uh, tried and they were sentenced to death under Mary I. And uh, these two bishops, one was named Ridley and the other was Latimer. Ridley and Latimer, they were both bishops, and they had been sentenced to be burned at the stake. Burned at the stake. And uh, Ridley was one who, we don't know for sure, but he, he seemed to have needed a pep talk, which I can understand why. And Latimer said a statement to him, and I thought I had it here, but I don't. But Oh, I do here, okay. So Latimer said to Ridley, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, 
and play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by God's grace shall never be put out. Now think about that for a moment. Here are two men who have been sentenced to death. They have been sentenced to burn at a stake. They could have said, we, we reject our teaching. Uh, we're gonna, we, you won't have any more trouble from us. They didn't do that. And they also didn't just face it and say, wow, look what, look what we get for, for pouring our lives out for the church. No, they said, we're going to make a stand today. And we're going to believe that even in this suffering, even in this trial that we face, even though we've been struck down, that our voice will be heard. And they believed that this light from themselves, this light of them burning, was going to start a fire in England. And we, we know that a lot of that's true. That England, the Great Awakenings, things came out of England. And us here today are the product of that, of Puritans who said, we want to go to a place where there is a, uh, the opportunity to worship freely. We're here today because of that. Because of those men and women who, who left and they came to this country and started something. Now, the question that we have to ask a lot of times is, is the wor- world getting darker? Is the world getting darker? We turn on the news and we see things like the shooting yesterday, and it's easy for us to say, well, absolutely. Absolutely, it's getting darker. Look how much evil is prevailing. Look at how much bad is happening. We, we live in the, the wreckage of 9-11. I've heard a, a, a research paper not too long ago of a psychologist who said that America as a country shows all of the symptoms of PTSD. As a country, the way, that we, the way that we react, the way that we operate, we as a people seem to be suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder. That's an interesting thing to say. But we deal with that. And what was it? It was evil men who, who stood up and did something. We, we, we have a history of evil in our country. We have a history of evil in the world with World War II, the Holocaust, things that were unspeakable. Things that were absolutely, without question, evil. How is the world not getting darker? That's the question that we ask. In the Puritans coming to America, yes, we have a heritage there. Yes, we have a history, and and that should be valued. But something very interesting began to happen. For the first time in, in world history, the Christian church, over time, began to... Uh, in a lot of sense, eradicate um, persecution. Here in America, we don't suffer with persecution. There was times at the beginning where, where we did, but we really don't suffer with persecution. And you might say, well, our faith is attacked. Well, let's think about that for a second. Really, our faith isn't attacked. Our American way of life is attacked. We're told where we can't pray. We're told where we can't have the Bible. We're not ever told that we can't pray. We're not ever told that we can't read the Bible. That's really not persecution in that sense. It is an attack, and it's something that we must must fight against. But our faith, we are able to to worship freely. Here we're in a place right now where we don't have fear of somebody coming in the back door and arresting us for what we're doing. But there are countries in this world that do. There are countries in this world where they have to be underground because uh, if someone knew that they were worshiping together, they would be persecuted, they would be put to death. That is not a fear that we face on a daily basis. It does happen in the world today. 
here in America, we have stepped into something very uh, strange in that we are able to worship freely without any fear. And there's very few other places in America where that isn't happening in some regard, or in the world where that isn't happening in some regard or another. Now, over time, we began to, um, some, in some ways, isolate ourselves from the rest of the world, forgetting that there are things happening in other countries. We might say, well, we're being persecuted here, forgetting that persecution is much broader. In that, the end of the world concept becomes a lot more smaller things lead us to think, well, this must be the end. Because our corner of the world is getting darker, it leads us to believe that the world must be getting darker, regardless of what's happening. We can kind of get this idea of, of, of the American person, you know, sitting in a lazy boy watching TV, turning on the TV, seeing a tragic story, and saying, well, this is it. The world's coming to an end. Forgetting all of the things that we have that are advancements in humanity, advancements that we just kind of neglect. And we can even see this some in, in our style of worship here in America. Now, I love hymns. I love them. I, I think there is so much theology packed into, into, into good hymns. Uh, A.W. Tozer once said that if you, if you want a good theology education, spend about three years studying the hymns, specifically those of Isaac Watts. Now, I haven't spent three years doing that, but I've, I've spent a lot of time with, with Isaac's, Isaac Watts' hymns, and I can tell you that there is so much theology packed into them. But just like with Scripture and just like with everything, not all hymns are the same, right? And so while there are some that are very impactful, there are some that I think, while the intention might have been good, I think they sometimes miss the mark a little bit. And a couple of those might be songs like, When We All Get to Heaven, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder, I'll Fly Away, Heaven is My Home and in the Sweet By and By. Nothing wrong with those songs. They're good. But I want to kind of point to something real quick. They all focus on there. They all focus on when I'm away from this dying world and I'm up there. Now, that's not a bad thing. We should be focused on heaven. We should be focused. Paul said, you know, put, or not Paul, but the author of Hebrews, might be Paul, we don't know, said, place your eyes on, on, on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. So there's something about looking forward. There's something about looking at heaven. Nothing wrong with that. But so many of these talk about, if I can just get through, if I can just get by, if I can just make it through another day, if I can just make it through this horrible life, if I can just push through the suffering and I get to heaven one day, everything's going to be good. And it will be. There's no doubt about that. I, I, I long for the day one day whenever I get to worship Jesus in heaven. But what I, what I might argue is that it distracts us from the assignment. Because what Paul is saying here is it's the testimony of us walking through our suffering that leads us to motivate the church. And if we're walking through our suffering saying, well, another day that was bad, I, I just can't wait till we get there. Are we motivating the church with our testimony? Or, like Ridley and Latimer said, what we're doing here on earth will light a fire will light and ignite a movement of God here, not just, well, let's just get through this torment, let's just get through this execution, and then we can be in heaven. But what is it doing for the people who are around us? What's the assignment here? Now, what was different 
about Paul? What was different about Ridley and Latimer? What was different about the early Christians that we don't always do here? And that's that they faced their suffering head on. They faced it with a sense of, you know what, let's, let's, let's take it for all it's worth. Let's move. Let's advance. They were hard-pressed, but they were not crushed. They were perplexed, but they were not despairing. They were persecuted. They were not abandoned. They were struck down, but they were, they, they were not destroyed. When we walk through the difficult things, when we walk through the challenges that we face, our testimony is what motivates other people to do things. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said on this rock, I will build my church, and the, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have to believe that when we walk through difficult times, it doesn't make the difficult times easier. Paul didn't, he, he didn't deny that it was hard. He didn't deny that it was difficult. He just said as we walk through it, when we share our testimony about the things that we went through, it motivates other believers. It motivates the church to do more. It motivates the church to push further. That's why we encounter it. That's why we endure it. Not our glory, but to the glory of God. Now, I have three invitations here that I think are important. The first invitation is to see that God upholds us even in times of trouble. That's hard, to, that's hard to do sometimes, especially as we watch on the news things that are difficult, like the shooting yesterday, and we think, God, where, where are you in these moments? I asked the question earlier, is the world getting darker? Yeah, it is. But in that, the church is getting brighter. When people have no hope in the things that they've placed their hope in, when those things fail and they're lost, where will they turn? They'll turn to the church. They'll turn to the gospel because it's the only truth that over time has gotten better, has gotten more profound. And I, I know I, we, we talk sometimes about the state of the church. We talk sometimes about that the church is in a place of disarray, and I, and I would agree with that. I think there is a... Uh, a lot of churches are, are shutting down that were teaching things that they shouldn't have been. A lot of churches are shutting down who are really ineffective in their community. And, and so where are we now? What, what's happening? Well, if you look at the statistics, there are more Christians in the world today than there were people in the Roman Empire. We've advanced. We've moved forward. We have grown as a people and as, as a kingdom. You, you look at the, 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 uh, the continent of Africa. There are more salvations happening there now than there ever have been in the history of the world. Muslim countries where people who were sold out to their faith are now having encounters with, uh, with revelations of Jesus and they're being converted. These are miraculous things that only the Holy Spirit could do. And here in our side of the world where oftentimes we, we forget what persecution really is, it's easy for us to forget and to miss those things are happening over there. That there is advancement. That the church is growing. That we as, as a Christian faith are advancing and growing. God is with us. And even though we face difficult times, he upholds us in our times of trouble. That's my first invitation, that as we walk through difficult things, we can remember that. My second invitation is this, to see that our current troubles are temporary. That is hard to do, especially if what we've been facing has been going on for a long time. But even if it's an entire lifetime of trouble, that little bitty blip on the, on the larger scale, 
is so insignificant to the eternal blessing that we receive. That little thread on the tapestry, it's only a part of the whole. So my second invitation is that we see our current troubles as temporary. To remember that our suffering is encouragement to others. I don't know about you, but whenever I saw that unpacked in the passage, it was encouraging to me. And it also caused me to rethink the way that I approach difficult times. Because people are watching. When we walk through challenges, when we walk through difficult things, it's easy for us to become disheartened. It's easy for us to reject our faith. But that could be the opportunity that somebody is waiting for to see. You know, you're, you're sold out to your faith when things are good. What do you do when things go bad? You know, the people who are walking through the pain of this shooting right now, they need to see a church that is dedicated to its God. They need to see a church who is holding strong to what it teaches in the good times and the bad. They need to see that hope, that even when we face things that are difficult, we can stand firm because we know that the eternal is greater than the temporary. So my last invitation is that, to remember that our suffering is encouraging to others. Would you stand with me if you're able? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that you motivate us, even in times of trouble. I pray that you would open up our spiritual eyes to see our situations as being an opportunity for us to glorify you in our response. Not that we can't feel pain, not that we can't feel hurt, not that we can't grieve, not that we can't be frustrated and angry and, 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 and struggle, but help us to remember that there are eyes watching us waiting to see how we respond to suffering. And I pray that our response would be that of, of, of Paul. It would be that of the early church. It would be that of the bishops who said, in my, in my, my difficult time, you're going to do something incredible. I pray that you would help us to walk through the difficulties of life because they will happen. They are happening. You would help us to walk through, come out on the other side with a testimony that motivates the church to not just look to when we get to heaven, but to look at what we can do here and now. Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. We will see you on Sunday. Thou welcomes me the kindness of mercy that bought with blood wholeheartedly my soul undeserved.